Well, good morning. My name is Dallas. The scripture reading comes from Micah chapter 6, verse 8. It says this, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Micah chapter 6, verse 8. You know, the scriptures really are as relevant today as they were then. Amen? Well, it's my honor to introduce our speaker today. Y'all get to hear from a real preacher this morning. It's going to be a treat. All right. Um, Walter is the CEO of Appalachia Service Project, and he's actually retiring next month. And so almost, I think, 15 years of real faithful service to helping low-income families with home repair and even sometimes new builds. And Walter comes from a humble beginning himself. And so this community has really benefited from his faithfulness, especially over the last 15 years. So it's a treat to have you this morning. Was there anything else that you told me to say uh, that I missed? So, no, I'm just kidding. Hey, let me pray for you, and then I'll give it over to you, probably. Father, uh, thank you for this morning. I pray that you will stir in our hearts. pray that you'll speak through my dad. I uh, pray that you will just give him a confidence, a boldness, and that it'll just be your message flowing through him into us. We love you very much. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All you. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, I didn't know so many people at Grace Meadows own boats that you could get here today. I, uh, I was beginning to wonder. I have my own little lake at my house that I discovered that I never have discovered before over the last few days. Well, it is Super Bowl Sunday, and also, you know, um, I've been all week, my family's known that I'm speaking today, and around my family, boy, that's just not a good thing. I, I want you to know, uh, I got a text from my daughter with that meme that said you should be as excited about church as you are about the Super Bowl. So when your preacher makes a good point, dunk him in Gatorade. <laughs> I, I never answered the text. I never, you know. Um, my grandson, Jackson, says, Pappy, don't preach too long. We don't want to miss the beginning of the Super Bowl. <laughs> I said, it's at 6.30. He said, well. <laughs> and then... Dallas, I, you know, I, I don't know, you know, we, uh, we have a great relationship, but man, uh, Dallas, I got, I got to tell you, I, you know, I, I was so excited about preaching and came here this morning and I forgot my Bible. <laughs> so I asked Dallas for his, but I, I, there's a problem with Dallas's Bible. told Dallas while we're growing up, you know, I never get mad, I just get even. Uh, Well, thank you for the opportunity to speak uh, today, and it's always a privilege to represent our Lord Jesus Christ in the pulpit. 
And today, I, I, uh, when Dallas asked me uh, to schedule this date, um, you know, I, I've been looking forward to it. I, I've known a lot of you for a lot of years, and uh, it's been such a privilege uh, to be able to share God's Word with you. And uh, the passage that, that God very evidently put in front of me, because I actually used this passage to speak to another group recently, was Micah 6.8. And the one thing I've been convicted of in my heart that I felt like that I should speak to people about is always taking Scripture in its context so we get its full meaning. Often things are taken out of context and, and misused, not only in the church, but in the world. And we see none of us like to be taken out of context, right? When you say something, you know, you could say whatever. I, I, one of my favorite things uh, that I've heard in, in the whole idea of taking things in context was uh, the senator who was speaking and said something about, you know, when you read the press, you know, you, sh- you shouldn't really believe the story if it's taken out of context. And so the press reported the next day, Senator says you should not believe the press. Right? And so none of us like to be that way. And I feel in Scripture, oftentimes, we'll take a wonderful Scripture, one like Micah 6.8, and we'll miss a lot of the meaning because we don't take it in context. It's just like your life. I mean, how would you like to just be judged by what people see for one hour on a Sunday if that's all they see you? I mean, to get to know you, they need to know your context. They need to know, you know, how you live your life, what's going on in your life each and every day. And I think it's the same thing about Scripture. And of course, why it's so important for Scripture is because this is how we get to know God through Scripture and then through how God lives out the truths of Scripture in our lives. Micah 6 8 is one of the most wonderful verses in the Bible. In fact, some have said it is the best, the best description of the life of faith in the Old Testament, and maybe second only to Jesus' answer about the greatest commandment in the whole Bible. Now think about that. That's quite a statement about a verse from the Old Testament. And why do people say that? Because it answers very directly about what God requires of us. And it is to do what? To do justice, to love mercy or kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. And I would say the only verse that could pass that would be the great commandment that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, spirit, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Wouldn't it be great if we could live by those two scriptures each and every day of our lives? Well, let's take this verse in context, though, to see if we can get a little more out of it than just that incredible, wonderful truth that we just, that we just read from it. First of all, we need to know its historical context. Micah was a prophet, 750 B.C. in Israel, and it was a time of relative peace in Israel. And during times of peace, you often have prosperity during those times. Micah was a contemporary of Amos, and both Amos and Micah are known in the Old Testament as our prophets of social justice. Now, I know that term sometimes gets a bad rap today, but social justice simply meaning the refrain we hear over and over through the Bible that God has a special concern for the widows, orphans, and those who are poor. Widows, orphans, and those who are poor. Those who are vulnerable in our society who are often taken advantage of by others. 
The prophet Amos, read that book. Man alive, that one will get right next to you sometimes. In that book, it says that the rich in that society panted for the very dust on the heads of the poor. That that's how much the rich were taking advantage of those who didn't have anything to give. It's also the prophet Amos that said, May justice roll down like rivers, right? And righteousness like ever-flowing waters. And Micah himself says, Hate evil, embrace good. Throughout the book of Micah, we see this refrain, same as we see it in the book of Amos, about doing justice in the world and protecting those who are vulnerable. And beyond that, then, how we should live our lives before a holy God. Now this morning, though, not only do I want us to look at the historical context, I want us to look at the literary context. What are the verses that come right before this? And do they lend any meaning to this? And I think that you'll see that they do. Now, i got to break out my readers. It comes with age. But let's read Micah 6, 6 through 8 together. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearly calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Taking the verse in its literary context helps us to understand even better what Micah is saying in his answer to these questions that are asked in verses 6 and 7. In verses 6 and 7, you have somebody that comes before the prophet and says, what do I need to do? So that I may come to God. What do I need to do that I may have remission for my sins? What do I need to do so that I may come before the presence of God? Now, does Micah answer his question directly? Does he tell him what kind of offerings that he needs to bring? You see, we have a great contrast between the world viewpoint and the viewpoint of God of the questioner in verses 6 and 7 and Micah's viewpoint of God and worldview in Micah 6, 8. In fact, let's look at that just a moment. First of all, the questioner in Micah 6, 7, uh, if we could jump to that slide real quick. I'm sorry. In Micah 6, 7, the questioner says, I'm sorry, we had it just a second ago. There we go. In Micah 6, 7, 6, 6 and 6, 7, the questioner says, how can I come to God? That there's a separation. He believes there's a separation between himself and God. In Micah 6, 8, he talks about walking humbly with God, that God is with him, that there's a separation between the two. In Micah 6, 6 and 7, he bows before a God on high, subservient, lower than, like a king, uh, a lowly servant before a king. In Micah 6, 8, 
he walks humbly with God on the same turf, hand in hand, together. Micah 6, 6 and 7, it's a religious practice. What sacrifice must I make? In Micah 6, 8, it's moral living. How do I live my life? In Micah 6, 6 and 7, it's transactional. What must I sacrifice to God so that then God will forgive me? In Micah 6, 8, though, it's relational. It's walking and living humbly with God. In Micah 6, 6 and 6, 7, it is favor through excess and extreme. Notice he says in verse 7, not just how many sacrifices, but if I give thousands, and if I give, if there are thousands of rivers of oil, and it even gets to the extreme, should I sacrifice even my own firstborn to gain favor with God? And then, of course, in Micah 6, 8, favor is through obedience to God and God, how God wants you to live. In Micah 6, 6 and 6, 7, he talks about the size of sacrifice, that that's what matters. And in Micah 6, 8, it's not about the size of sacrifice, but it's about right living and the elimination of sin. And finally, in Micah 6, 6 and 7, the questioner has this fear of God. What must I give to him to satiate placate God's anger about the way I'm living so that I might be forgiven and of course in Micah 6 8 it's about faith in a God that you walk with day after day after day I think there's a reason that the prophet wrote the book like this so that we could compare the viewpoint of the person in Micah 6 6 and 7 versus the prophet in Micah 6 8 and this is my challenge to you this morning before we go through the rest of the message. The questioner in Micah 6, 6 and 7 is practicing religion. The prophet in Micah 6, 8 is living the life of faith. And my question to you this morning simply is this. Are you practicing religion? Or are you living the life of faith? You say, well, we don't make sacrifices today. Well, we have modern day equivalents. I mean, this is Super Bowl Sunday, right? I remember back years ago, being a good Southern Baptist that I was, we had Sunday morning church, Sunday night church, Wednesday night church, right? And Super Bowl was always on Sunday night. And guess what quandary I had as a good Southern Baptist? Would I go to church or would I stay home and watch the Super Bowl? And you know, in years when my team was playing in the Super Bowl, it was even worse. Because I thought if I stayed home to watch, then God would take it out on the team that I liked. <laughs> and that maybe if I went to church, God would favor the team I wanted to win. Well, you don't know how many years I was checking the score down on my phone. List, trying to listen to the preacher at the same time. I don't know if that was a good way to do it at all. But how often do we kind of make bargains with God like that? We know how we live and we say, well, God, if you'll do this, then I'll come to church every Sunday for the next three months. In fact, I may even read my Bible a couple times a week. And I'll take time to pray. Right? It's the same thing that we find ourselves often doing. We find ourselves bargaining with God, practicing a religion that if we show up for church every time the church doors are open, that somehow that alone 
will satiate God's uh, disappointment in the way we're living our lives. How many of you do that? You think by coming to church or by reading your Bible, somehow that alone gains you more favor with God. I'm here to tell you this morning, there's nothing you can do that will cause God to love you any more than He already does. And there's nothing you can do that will cause God to love you any less than He already does. There's no way that we can gain favor with God simply by doing things like coming to church, reading our Bible, praying. Now, all of those are good things. Don't take me out of context and leave here and say, the preacher said, you don't have to go to church, you don't have to read your Bible, you don't have to pray. No, we do those things not to gain favor with God. We do those things not to cause God to love us. We do those things because God loves us and because God has shown his favor upon us by saving us through Jesus Christ. You see, that's the point. The point is, what is your motivation? Why do you come to church? Is it to celebrate a life of living and walking with God every day? Or is it somehow you feel like you have to do this to somehow gain God's favor? Are you practicing religion? Or are you living the life of faith? There's a big difference between the two. Let's walk through what God wants us to do in Micah 6 8. So let's go to Micah 6 8 again for just a moment. If I can find where I put my glasses, too many pockets here. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. He has told you, O man, what is good? What is good? Um, I think we all want to do good. Now, any grammar police out there? Come on, you know if you're a grammar policeman. All right? I mean, you know that we don't do good, we do well. Is, is that right? Huh? Isn't it? Okay. Now, the Bible says Jesus went about doing good. Now, I don't know about you, but if you say Jesus went about doing well, it just doesn't sound the same, does it? No, there is a sense that good, that's supposed to be an adjective and not an adverb, becomes almost a way of life, a thing that we can do. Jesus did good. How did Jesus do good? Because Jesus lived a life exactly like it's described in Micah 6.8. He went about doing justice and loving mercy, and walking humbly with God. You know, when God created the world, every day at the end of creation, God would say, it is good. Right? Every day of creation, after he created man and woman on earth, at the end of that day, he said, it is very good. So I believe a good definition of the word good is the earth just as God intended it. To be the earth just as God intended it to be and I believe the reasons Jesus went about doing good and how why God wants us to do good is that we are doing what 
We are restoring the earth back to the way God created it to be. Have you ever thought about your own discipleship and your own life of faith as restoring the world back to the way God created it to be? Think about that. What destroyed the goodness of God's creation? It was sin. It was sin. Adam's sin broke the goodness that was in the world. And all of the Bible is about redeeming that time of sin that broke the goodness of the world. And the good was restored through what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And Jesus came into the world going about doing good, showing us what we should do. And what should we do? What are the three things in this verse then? First one is that we should do justice. I love the Hebrew word for justice. It's mishpat. I know something about saying that word. Mishpat. It doesn't sound like justice, does it? It sounds like some instrument you would use to cook, right? Well, anyway. Mishpat. What does justice mean? Justice means that we do right in our own dealings with other people and right any wrongs that maybe we're responsible for, but it goes beyond that. It also means, it also means that we protect the rights of those who are vulnerable and try to right the wrongs of those who have suffered injustice. Now, I've headed up a social Christian ministry for the last 13 years. And I believe and see out there in the world a lot of people who have suffered injustice and they pay for it economically and the way they have to live their lives. I mean, I'm not afraid, as a conservative evangelical, I'm not afraid to say that justice can be bought in the world in which we live. I'm not afraid to say that those who don't have are defenseless and often exposed in the society in which we live. I'm not afraid to say that what we do in repairing the homes of low-income families and building new homes for them is trying to right wrongs that have happened in this world so that they have a decent place to live. I believe that Christians, each and every day, should be righting wrongs that we see, injustices that we see, in this world and if that makes me progressive or liberal i guess i am but i tell you what just read the book of amos read the book of micah look at what jesus said about the poor and i think you'll understand that it is encumbered upon all of us to do justice secondly it says that we are to love kindness or mercy depending on your uh, translation of the bible I like the old King James, loving kindness. Do we, do we use that word anymore? Well, that person has loving kindness. I don't think I've ever said that about anybody. We say they're kind or they're loving. To love mercy or kindness, the word here is the Hebrew word hesed. And it's one of those gutturals. You know, if you're German, you can probably say it the right way. I can't. Hesed. Hesed is the word that comes closest to the New Testament word agape. It's a word that kind of means love. It's like love. It's, it's not just mercy because that can be pejorative sometimes. You feel sorry for people. But there's a love element to it. And it's this kind of love. It's the kind of love that really 
is only dependent upon the need of someone else to experience our love. In other words, it's a love that is expressed simply because that's who we are. It comes naturally from us. That our justice should always be tempered by love. That we show love and we give mercy sometimes when we would want to give punishment to give what we think would be justice. You know, oftentimes I'm questioned by people, well, when you do this work for these families, do they thank you? I said, well, most of the time. But I said, if they don't, that's okay too. Oh, I mean, don't you feel bad when you do that? And I said, no. I go, well, why? I mean, they're unappreciative. And I go, I don't do this for their thank yous. I do this because this is just what Christians do. Showing love in this world is not transactional. Now we're back to being the guy asking the questions in in verses 6 and 7. No, showing love in this world is, as Christians, we just love. That's what we do. How the other person responds to our love is between them and God, not between them and us. We are commanded just to love. Wow. Should that change the way you live in the world? We live in a tit-for-tat transactional world, don't we? That's not the way God loves us. Thank God that it's not the way God loves us. And it's not the way that we're supposed to love in the world either. And finally, the last phrase here, to walk humbly with your God. I love it because the questioner in verses 6 and 7 talks about the God. And here it talks about your God. To walk humbly with God. Can you imagine? I've always tried to picture what it's like to walk with God. I mean, like physically, right? I don't know if I'm like being drug around like a little kid, you know, you see in the grocery store. You know, you know God's way up there in his hand, he's pulling me up. Or, or if God is like, you know, has these flowing robes and stuff. And I can't really get close to him because of all the, the cherubims and seraphims that are floating around him. You know, I mean, physically, it's, it's hard to imagine walking with God. But this expression, the Hebrew word halak, and used here throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, we read about those who walked with God. It's this idea that you so commune with God and understand God's presence in your life every day that it is an ongoing conversation all day long with God because you know that God is right there with you. Right there with you. I used to have a hard time understanding when Paul said, pray without ceasing. But now I understand. Every time I turn around, I'm like, oh God, please. You see what's going on now, just help me. Or oh God, help that family. It's like God's right there. I want you to know, the questioner in verses 6 and 7 was concerned about a destination or where he was going or where he was going to end up. In Micah 6, 8, to talk about walking humbly with God, it's not about where you're going. It's about who you're going with. It's not about where you're going. It's about who you're going with. See, are you practicing religion? Or are you living the life of faith? That image of walking with God, um, our worship team, you can start coming on up. Uh, That image of walking with God, though, 
I just love. Um, remember the story of Enoch? What does it say? And Enoch walked with God. Enoch was no more, right? Um, that I, I can just imagine as I'm getting older, I just turned 69, and when you get that age, you start thinking about, you know, what's next, right? And uh, I think about my life and how I've lived my life and what walking with God means, and I just can imagine one day, and I don't know how long off it's going to be, but one day I'll be kind of walking and talking with God, and God will say something like, Walter, I think we're closer to my place than we are yours. Why don't you just come on home with me tonight? Shouldn't it be that natural for all of us? And if God does that one day, I hope Jesus is there. And instead instead of saying, well done, thou good and faithful servant, I hope he says something like this, Walter, you did good. You did good. Are you practicing religion? Or are you living the life of faith? Are you doing justice every day? Are you loving, expecting nothing in return? Are you walking humbly, bowing in your heart every day with God? The altar is going to be open. If you want to come pray, maybe you've been a believer for many years, but you've fallen back into this transactional relationship with God where it's tit for tat. God, I'll do this for you if you do this for me. Come and confess that to him today and start living the life of faith again. God bless you. Come stand with us. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. 